Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like me, one simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating also makes this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that'll make this type of abuse worse. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma, and Rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need real support, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org. We'd love to see you in a session today. We have a member of our community on today's episode. Her name is Elizabeth, and she is going to share her story. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. She's been a podcast listener for a long time. It's always an honor to have podcast listeners on. So thank you so much for supporting the podcast by listening to it. Let's start with your story. Tell me about the beginning. Did you recognize your husband's abusive behaviors at first? When I was dating ex-husband before we were married, I noticed some things regarding his behavior, specifically with like social media. There was an instance when he omitted some information and I didn't, of course, at that point consider it abuse. I just addressed it with him, was honest up front and he was agreeable and said that I was right. And I thought that's it, that's solved. And I felt like he heard me and we kind of moved on. Once we were married, I noticed that some of his responses to me, I just felt like there was a lot more contempt. He kind of was less agreeable if I brought things to him. And that's when I started to have some questions and feel quite out of sorts because it felt like such a change from when we were dating. Do you mind me asking, what was the nature of the information that he withheld before you got married? We hadn't been dating that long, and I had a trip planned with a couple of my girlfriends to go to Europe, and it had already been planned for quite a while, and I was going to be away for a couple months. And I had felt like, you know, I wanted to pursue the relationship, and he said, would you want to be exclusive? And it was like a big yes for me. And so when I was away, I felt like communication was difficult. I felt like he was hard to pin down. And... He had said he was going to go camping one weekend, and I had this gut feeling that he may be going camping with someone he worked with who was quite a bit younger than him. And I don't know why, but I just had this gut feeling. And I asked him if he did. And first he said he went with just my dog because he was taking care of my dog. And then he said, oh, I went with some coworkers. The truth was I found out much later, about six months later, that he had gone on a one-on-one camping trip with a 21-year-old when he was in his mid-30s. So that's obviously a red flag. But at the time, I was already pretty invested and he he denied anything happened. And 
I kind of worked through it. And at first he was quite understanding, but then he became quite pressuring that I get over it in his words after a few days of him like listening to my concerns that he withheld that information. That was the situation, but nothing had happened between them. That you knew of. Exactly. Did you ever find out later that there was something that happened between them? He told me that she shot him down and said no. Looking back now and the knowledge I have, I think there was a certain amount of grooming going on with that coworker and that she maybe saw him as an older brother type. And in the reality, there was a different motive on his end. So I think it probably confused her quite a bit if I was to put myself in her shoes. Totally. So had he been able to, he would have. Yes. And he said that. He said that at the time, like back in the day or six months later. I was going to say that doesn't sound like something he'd say right away. It's really interesting to me when they decide to lie and not tell you information. And then when they decide to tell you the information, it's almost this calculated time that is meant to hurt you, not necessarily a time to bring you closer when they feel like you're maybe having a great day or something's going well for you or something like that because it's calculated to hurt you. So can you tell me the nature of when he told you this? I I definitely identify there has been times when that's the case. And I used to call it like the trickle disclosure. That's kind of what I got in my relationship was, oh yeah, this flashback came back to me and and it would be gut-wrenching for me. And looking back, I think he did do that sometimes in that way to keep me kind of destabilized a bit. But this particular instance for this situation, I think he was afraid I was going to leave him, that I was getting tired of whatever was going on. So he he told me about this camping trip and the fact that he lied, omitted, and told me at that point that now we had everything out in the open. This was before we got engaged. And so that was like, okay, now you know everything. It was a lie. Looking back, he did that when I first met him two days in. He told me something that wasn't the truth. But I thought, wow, how vulnerable. He told me this you know, difficult part that he had cheated on a past partner, one partner, one time. It's grooming. I had no idea what grooming was, but it was a way to have me kind of trust him to say like, oh, he was up front and told me this information and that's all there is. Oh, all the skeletons are out of the closet and they weren't, you know, but it, it was a way to kind of silence me a bit. I've been thinking of a name for this, but I, I don't have one yet, but manipulative truth, which is never the whole truth, but they make you think no one who is a liar would tell me this thing. So they must be telling the truth, but they're telling a part of the truth that is the top of the iceberg. And if they were to tell the truth, they'd say, well, I've cheated on every partner and I still masturbate every day and I still look at porn and I have every intention of cheating on you because I don't really want to be with one person. And then they say, now everything's out on the table. Uh So it creates a false sense of safety. Yeah. Exactly. And they do it on purpose. I think the other issue there, if it was before you were engaged, was it a test? If I tell her this partial truth that seems horrific and she'll still get engaged to me, this is the kind of girl I want to marry. She believes me. Exactly. So they're going to tell like a, a partial truth that feels really true in order to test like, is this the kind of woman that I can exploit sometimes, right? And that's not your fault. It has nothing to do with you. It's really, really, really scary and sad and awful that that is their intention from the beginning. That's what 
that's what is always so alarming. It was mind blowing. It was to have that level of that it was that planned and calculated. What types of reasons did you give in the beginning for this behavior that seemed kind of off? Initially, I think I there was some self-blame and that's kind of the work I've done in my own journey. I sort of thought, well, maybe the problem lies with me. And he agreed. <laughs> he agreed that the problem was probably me. I had said, well, I had done counseling in the past and I think I will, I should take it back up. And he said, yeah, I think you should too. And so he really let me kind of go down that road of, of you know, I just need to do my own work that it was my neediness, you know, or anxiousness or this or that, that was the problem and that there was nothing had changed really on his end. But I just felt this sense of, it was sort of night or day, we, we moved to a different town and it was kind of a college town. There was younger women around in this college town. And I feel like maybe he was triggered from his own past because before I met him, he'd kind of been in the city where it was a lot of college students, young women around, and he was in a kind of party atmosphere. And I didn't know all the extent of it. So when we moved to this new city and we were newly married and his behavior towards me changed, he helped me in that way of thinking it was me. So I started counseling and he did come to the, some of those early counseling sessions as well with me. And that's when we found out there was an addiction. He came to confirm to the therapist that it was your problem. Did you find the therapy to be helpful in this particular situation? No. I'd say no. I think she was just trying to figure things out as well. Um, I was also pregnant. So the goal was to kind of help reduce my anxiety. Like I was feeling very anxious in the pregnancy and I wasn't able to put my finger on what was going on. So it felt very crazy making. And that's what I internalized was coming from within me and that I had nothing to worry about. And here I was quite worried and that impact on my unborn child. And so she was just basically trying to support me with my anxiety. Well, turns out my gut is pretty sensitive. Right. <laughs> and yeah. And so then I kept picking at the wound kind of thing and just bringing my concerns to him over and over. Something doesn't feel right. Something has changed. Did you get diagnosed at that time with like anxiety or anything like that? No. Okay. No, we used it as a diagnosis just for insurance purposes, but I've never had a diagnosis of anything. Okay, that's good. So many women get diagnosed with something during this time because instead of their therapist saying, oh, this is your internal warning system telling you something, something's wrong. You are reacting in a totally normal way. You are great. Let's figure out why your warning system is going off. Instead of saying that, they're happy to be like, oh, yeah, you're just another crazy woman who's having too much anxiety and you're hysterical for no reason. Like, I always just, ugh. That's the only message I was getting. Before we get back to the conversation, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue. Or they try to quote unquote, treat the victim and the abuser in the same setting. That's unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. So the therapist doesn't help you figure out what's going on. She doesn't help you figure out that you're being abused. And then you realize he's addicted to pornography without the help of that therapist. How did you discover his pornography use? I kept asking, you know, something has changed. What has changed? And I thought, is it because I'm pregnant? Again, a lot of focus on myself. 
but I knew something was different. And one day we were at the house and I thought to ask him, finally, it's never been on my radar. And I, I said, do you look at pornography? Because something in the conversation led me to ask the question. And he said, yes, I do. So that I don't bleep other women. And I was shocked. Like it's a moment kind of etched in my memory because I was in shock that he had never offered that information. That conversation had never come up. Also that his opinion or his viewpoint was that if he did not look at porn, he was not in control of himself enough and he did not have the integrity or the ability or the adult skill of not having sex with someone that wasn't his wife. Like that was his reasoning. Otherwise, if he didn't look at porn, hey, Elizabeth, you are lucky, right? I'm such a giver. I'm looking at porn for you because if I didn't do this, I would be out having sex with other women and you don't want me to do that, do you? It was kind of progress in his mind. I'm doing great kind of a thing. <laughs> oh, that must have been devastating. I'm so sorry. So you find out, when does the word addict come into play? I don't think until he started, he sought out the Sex Addicts Anonymous. I think it had been a decade since I'd even heard of the terms someone having a sex addiction. And I kind of laughed. Like, I, I didn't think it was a real thing. Why did he seek it out? Much like when he confessed about the six months, you know, the story about the girl, the 21-year-old. I think he could sense that I, I would potentially leave him or have him leave the house. And so he found an SAA ad in the paper and said, I'm going to go. And he went and I, at that point, started on the journey of thinking that was our only issue. And then I found out it's, it was a much bigger issue than just looking at pornography, you know, the in kind of ingrained pattern of, you know, his character and everything. But at the time, once I started to learn about the world of sex addiction because of the group and my own support group, I thought that was the only issue. It's interesting to me that it is the issue, but the issue is larger than just that. This is a systemic issue, and it breaks my heart when women don't go the abuse route, when they go the addiction route first, because it keeps women in the abuse so much longer. And in a strange way, because the answer in COSA is, stay on your side of the street, work on your own yes. things, which is kind of the right answer a little bit, but only when you know exactly what you're dealing with. If you know you're dealing with abuse, then you realize, oh, I don't need to work on my side of the street. I need to get off the street. Yes, that was the point I missed. That's what I was seeking, you know, support from professionals. And I didn't really get that direction, you know. Did you ever go to a pornography addiction therapist? I did. I thought, okay, once I knew he had the, you know, had an addiction, I, I started reading. And that was what was recommended. And she recommended after meeting with he and I that we do a 90-day separation. And she reported to me she did not feel like there was any remorse or, you know, anything on his end is what she felt from meeting him and talking to him. So that was devastating in its own right because I had a small infant. And his counselor, on the other hand, was not certified sex addiction therapist. She was giving us conflicting information or conflicting directions. And she was trying to handle what was going on in a different way. So I was getting direction. I was still breastfeeding. I was getting direction like, you leave the house on a Saturday for 12 hours. 
and then he can leave the house the next day for 12 hours. But the whole time I didn't have safety. I didn't feel safe in my home around him, but I was trying all these different things. Even if the person would have been a certified sexual addiction therapist, the likelihood of them identifying the abuse is next to zero because they Mm -hmm. don't see it as an abuse issue. They're not certified abuse specialists. They're certified sexual addiction therapists. So they will identify anything he does as an extension of the addiction. So he's in addict mode. He's not in recovery, you know, something like that, rather than he is abusive, which is a totally different thing for a woman to hear. I applaud that first therapist, though, for saying, I don't think that he feels remorse or anything. So even though that was hard for you to hear, at least it was maybe a wake up call. It was definitely. We did try the separation as well. So we did separate for a short time. Okay. So at that time you did separate based on her counsel and then you ended up getting back together. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me how that happened. He wanted to separate from me as well. Definitely. But he didn't want to leave the comfort of the home. So his idea was that he would sleep in the living room. We had a loft in our garage. He'd go sleep out there. And I took a trip, four day or five day trip to California to visit a friend and to kind of have some space. I had my daughter with me. And when I came back, he picked us up at the airport. He barely acknowledged me. There was a lot of feeling of contempt. And I was like, you know what? I want this separation, but I want it. I want him out of the home. And so I, I told him and he raged and like tore things apart in the house. And I did call the police accidentally. I said, I will call 911 called the number they came he left after that for two months he still had access to my daughter he'd still come and get her but we really had no interaction did you get a protective order at that time I did not so fast forward a couple months he's still coming to get my daughter but I kind of try to have little to no contact with him in that exchange and then we're at church on uh Easter and I go out to use the bathroom or something and I walk by where my daughter is in the playroom and he's standing at the doorway of the playroom. And I thought it was this, you know, reconciliatory event in my mind. And from there, he doesn't move in right away, but we start communication again. I don't even know if he ever said he's sorry, maybe once, but I thought this is where we, we both take accountability and we start to move forward and repair our relationship. And he eventually did move in after about a month. We were together for another six months and it got worse. It got much worse. And looking back, he cut off all communication that I had with his counselor because she would allow me to call her. I was no longer allowed to talk to her. He wouldn't talk to anybody in the church with me. He wouldn't let me be around if he was talking to his sister, who was quite a bit older than him, who had been kind of a support. So I basically was completely isolated in those six months. And I would say the definitely the abuse escalated. I don't think he really wanted to be there. He just wanted to change the narrative of the story so that when he left, it was because I was crazy and unstable (laughs) versus what was the initial story. He kind of looked like the bad guy. Right. So after that six months, he left and I said, this is it. Like he was going on a trip to see his family And I just knew, I knew that this wasn't something we were both invested in repairing. And so I just kind of said, when you leave this time there, you're not coming back in the home. Then I moved forward on my own. 
pretty quickly to pursue divorce because I was going to move back to Canada. So it was kind of part of it was that I had to kind of secure my future because when he first left, all I could think about was how do I keep my daughter close to him? How do I make this work for him? Like my whole way of thinking was what would he want? And then I started to think about what do I want and what brings me peace? (laughs) And that led me to make some choices for myself and my daughter. We are going to take a break right here, but stay tuned. Elizabeth and I are going to continue her story next week. If this podcast was helpful to you, please help us reach other women by pushing that follow or subscribe button and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping get the word out. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on support the BTR podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.